Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome Three, to the New Books two, Network. One. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name's Claire Clark. I'm one of the hosts of the channel. And today I'm talking to Courtney Thompson, an assistant professor of the history of science and medicine and U.S. women's history at Mississippi State University and the author of the just released book, An Organ of Murder, Crime, Violence, and Phrenology in 19th Century America. Courtney, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Claire. I'm excited to be here. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. How'd you get to be a historian of medicine? Sure. So when I went away to to college, I I did my undergrad at Harvard. And when I enrolled, I originally enrolled as a psychology major. And I intended to be pre-med. I knew I was interested in medicine, but I thought I wanted to practice. And towards the end of my first year as a freshman at Harvard, I was trying to get out of all of my general electives so I could start my major, right, as we often Mm -hmm. do. And so I enrolled in a history class that I just took basically as a general elective, you know, when you have to fulfill those sort of core requirements. And the course was Madness in Medicine, and it was taught by Anne Harrington, the fantastic historian of psychiatry, mental illness, neurology at Harvard. And I I just fell in love. I fell in love with the topic. I, I realized that what I was really interested in wasn't studying the mind or the brain in the present, which I thought was what I was interested in with psychology. But what I was really interested in is how we came to the way that we look at the mind, the brain, the body, and medicine in the present. I switched my major to the history of science. And then as a junior, I had Anne Harrington yet again as the head of my junior seminar, our research seminar. And that semester, I realized that I actually really, really enjoy doing history research. The next year, I applied for grad school. I was lucky enough to get into Yale, and I ended up uh, enrolling there in the program for the history of science medicine. And it all happened because I took a random uh, course in my first year as a freshman, uh, trying to get out of a requirement, my history requirement, so that I could move on with my life. And I never moved on, I guess. I'm, I'm still here. But after that course, you had a pretty or have had a pretty straightforward trajectory. I think you are the first person I've interviewed on this show that has just gone seamlessly from freshman seminar to <laughs> professor of um, history of science. How, how was the path to, write, to writing an organ of murder? Where, 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 where does this project come, come fit in along the way? I mean, it sounds like a seamless path, doesn't it? But I can tell you that it was by no means perfectly smooth. Um, like I said, you know, it was it was a strange path that that led me into the history of science. And I did go right from undergrad to graduate school, which probably was not the best idea. Um, I think I could have used a little bit more time to figure out what I wanted to do to get a better picture of the history of science and medicine, going straight in and being surrounded by scholars who already had master's degrees or medical degrees or more life experience was very intimidating. So I entered grad school with sort of big eyes and big dreams and just wanting Mm -hmm. to do everything, but not sure what I really wanted to do. So I spent a lot of time in grad school just trying a lot of different things. Um, I spent time 
doing taking French history courses and I did research in France for a while. Um, I've, I've sort of just tried out a lot of different things, which has been fun for me, but it does make the process a bit slower. What really happened, though, is I thought that my dissertation was going to be something quite different. I thought my, my first project was going to be about, um, I guess, following in Anne Harrington's footsteps, uh, was going to be a history of psychiatry and neurology. I was really interested in the brain. And I originally thought, oh, I would do this project on asylums in the Second Empire in France. I went to do research there for a summer. And it was a, it was a wash. It was a flop. There was nothing in the archives, nothing usable. I realized the project I wanted to write wasn't going to be possible for me to write, at least at least as a as a graduate student. So I came back to the United States and had to start all over again at square one. And I went back to the archive. I went to the Beinecke and I started looking at basically everything they had about brains because mm-hmm. I thought, well, brains are interesting. I want to do something about the brain, something about the mind. And what I quickly realized is if you want to talk about the brain in the 19th century, what you really have to talk about is the skull. And if you want to talk about the skull in the 19th century, then pretty quickly that leads you on a path to phrenology. Now, I didn't want to write a project about phrenology. In fact, I really, there's a part of me that really regrets it because now I'm the phrenology chick and I'm going to be stuck there <laughs> for, for quite a while. Um, but, you know, you have to, you have to follow where your sources lead and where my sources led me to was, was phrenology. And once I was there, once I was mired in all of these projects, you know, all of these, these materials, all these documents, I remember going to Frank Snowden and he said, um, you know, I was telling him about, some of the materials I had found. And he looked at me and he just said, well, Courtney, what are the stakes? And I said, huh, what are the stakes? And that that got me thinking about this thing that just kept coming up, which is these phrenologists and these other folks interested in the brain and the skull just kept talking about murderers. They just They were just fascinated with criminals. And that made me think perhaps there's a story here about how criminals came to be the central object for the study of phrenology in particular and for other studies of the brain, the mind, the skull in the 19th century. Can you give us a little bit more detail about what phrenology is exactly? Because it's not practiced today. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think. Maybe we'll I get could, to I that. could dispute that. I think I think cool. we are still very much living in a phrenological world, or a world that's very much informed by phrenology. But um, phrenology, we can we can define fairly simply as the 19th century study of the cerebral localization of the brain via the skull. So what phrenologists were doing were tr- was trying to make sense of different qualities of minds. Uh, some of these were intellect, some of these were moral or character based. But essentially, they were trying to um, break down the mind into sort of discrete units, which could be mapped onto the brain itself and what were referred to as organs. So different sort of areas of the brain were each organs or centers for different aspects of intellect or morality, for example. And the idea was that the shape of the brain that manifested these organs would also then correspond to the shape of the skull. So in an era before CT scans or fMRI, you can't just scan a person's brain, you know, head and see what's inside. We don't want to cut open a bunch of people's brains while they're alive to see what's mm-hmm. going on in there. So by studying the skull, you could get a sense of what was going on with the brain underneath it. And therefore, you could say something about the mind of an individual and more than just their mind, their character, their potential, um, perhaps even their future. So the origins, I do want to stress to the science, no matter how strange it seems to us, 
were absolutely scientific and anatomical in nature. The early scientists who first proposed it, Franz, uh, Franz Gall and Johann Spotsheim, were both physicians and anatomists, and they did a lot of early work with the anatomy of the skull and the brain. Um, and while there was a lot of debate, you know, not everybody embraced the science immediately in the early decades of the 19th century. Its early spread was largely through elite intellectual circles of physicians, professors, legal, legal scholars, etc. So um, we often sort of dismiss phrenology today as this pseudoscience that nobody takes very seriously. Pseudoscience is a word I don't even use in the book. It's not a book, a word that I, I like because it's not useful for thinking about especially the early stages of the science as it was developed and as it began to proliferate. So um, the book focuses, let's, let's kind of jump, jump into the, the story that you start to mm-hmm. tell. The book focuses mainly on the United States from the 1930 or 1830s up until the 1850s. Can you tell us a little bit about the two cohorts of phrenologists who were, um, who were operating during this time? Yeah, sure. So in the book, I distinguish between two groups of uh, phrenologists or people interested in phrenology might be a more accurate term. So we have on the one hand, uh, before we even get to those two groups, we have our sort of phrenological founders, our European scientists who developed this this, pra- this set of practices. In the United States, something really interesting happens. As phrenology is translated into the United States, in the 1830s into the 1840s, the the group that initially embraces it are by and large elite intellectuals who I refer to as phrenological enthusiasts. And what distinguishes them is these were largely learned men, almost entirely men, learned men in elite circles. So I'm talking about figures like asylum superintendents, judges, lawyers, physicians, professors at institutions like Transylvania, University professors in medical schools, um, other figures. Uh, we might we might include, you know, even the presidents of Harvard and Yale had some at this time had some interest in phrenology. So the early sort of entry of phrenology into the United States was was shepherded by these elite intellectuals. Who the reason why I don't refer to them as phrenologists as such, and instead mm-hmm. phrenological enthusiasts, is that phrenology was never their profession. It was never their single identity. It was a set of, it was a science, a set of tools that they thought could be useful for their study of the body, of the mind, and of things like crime and other social problems. So phrenological enthusiasts were these elite intellectuals who embraced phrenology, who used phrenology, who spread phrenology, who published on phrenology, but were not necessarily phrenologists. It was not their full-time job. They were um, professors or doctors or lawyers, whatnot. The other group of phrenologists is the one that we're probably more familiar with. And that's the practical phrenologists, as they called themselves at the day. This was a group of phrenologists, most notably uh, Orson and Lorenzo Fowler, the Fowler brothers, who popularized phrenology. And instead of speaking mostly to elite intellectual circles, they were much more interested in speaking to a middle class audience of selling phrenology, um, selling texts, selling journals, selling uh their, their services in reading heads for a fee. And some of them were certainly elite in their own origins and uh, their own education. But they're, what's, what's sort of crucial about the distinction between these two groups is their educations tended to be different, their audience tended to be different, and their profession tended to be different. So our practical phrenologists generally were phrenologists. That's That was what they called themselves. That's how what they would put on their business cards. Um, and what they did full time was phrenology, as opposed to our early 
phrenological enthusiasts. And the point that I want to make about these two groups is that our image of phrenology in the 19th century United States is so focused on the work of the practical phrenologists, their popularizing efforts, their public lectures, the reading of Heads for a Fee, all of that, that this obscures the earlier influence of phrenology in other circles, including medicine, the law, and reform, where elite intellectuals who, again, didn't call themselves phrenologists, but used, wrote about, read, studied, argued with phrenology, um, had a pretty big impact and paved the way not just for the efflorescence of practical phrenology at mid-century, but also for the continued spread of phrenological thinking through various sort of different intellectual fields, some of which we still feel the effects of to this day. So where do where, where does phrenology fit into the history of medicine? Um, have other historians of medicine talked about it? Um, how do these kinds of two different groups of, well, on the one hand, phrenological enthusiasts, and on the other hand, phrenologists fit into um, into a, a larger narrative of the development of, of medicine in the U.S. in the 1800s? Yeah, so this is a great question. What is medical <laughs> about this story? And I, I, think, I think there's a few different parts to this, right? So first, we have the origins of itself. It was developed by physicians and anatomists based on body knowledge, right? Based on knowledge of the mind. And I, I should say that, you know, phrenology does have a home in the historiography. Um, there's a very robust historiography of phrenology. Um, you have figures like Steve Shapin and Roger Cooter and uh, Jeffrey Cantor writing about phrenology as sort of a case study in the 1970s and 1980s of the, the social construction of scientific knowledge. But phrenology has also long had a place in histories of medicine, especially histories of neurology. I'm not certainly not the first person to posit that phrenology can be seen as an early iteration of cerebral localization. And it's often seen as sort of key in the development and articulation of you know, the history of psychiatry, the history of neurology, these various studies of, of the mind. And of course, it has something to say about racial science as well. What's interesting about the story that I want to tell, especially because once you get crime into the mix, you start to think, well, we're getting very far away from medicine here, right? And the, the, the answer that I came to has to do with the influence of phrenology on medical jurisprudence. Essentially, what happens in the 1830s and 1840s is this is a period when phrenologists were not the only ones concerned with the mind. Um, you know, certainly since the beginning of the century, there have been a lot of innovations in the field of psychiatry, a lot of studies of mental illness more generally. And by the time you get to the 1830s, um, experts, physicians, legal experts, and what we can refer to as psychiatrists, although they were largely referred to as alienists or asylum superintendents at the time, were starting to really get interested in this question of criminal insanity. Where's the line of responsibility? If a criminal commits a crime, could this be a manifestation of mental illness? And if that is a manifestation of mental illness, what is the source of that manifestation? Is it a lesion to the brain? Is it an underdevelopment of the brain? Um, could it be due to an injury to the brain? So what is the tie between the anatomical and the mind? And then further, if we do believe a criminal to be mentally ill, then can they be held responsible for their actions? Can we actually take somebody who's criminally insane and put them in jail? Or for that matter, certainly, can we execute them for their crimes? So phrenology basically appears on the scene and starts to look like a really 
interesting new science of the mind at right the same moment that physicians and lawyers and um, again, those we can refer to as early psychiatrists were coming together to try to negotiate this question. And phrenology offered a really good way of thinking through exactly these permutations. It offered a language for understanding mental illness and especially related to criminality. It offered as well, as I've said, a very material sense of, of the source of mental illness that could lead to crime. Um, basically saying, you know, there are certain parts of the brain that could be overdeveloped or could be injured and therefore could lead one to commit crimes, especially violent crimes in particular ways. So what phrenology seemed to offer physicians, uh, medical scholars, legal scholars, was this potential explanatory system that could make sense of mental illness, but could also offer a practical solution to this problem of what do we do with the criminally insane? if such a category exists. So phrenology gets pulled into these discussions by physicians on the one hand, by asylum superintendents on the other, and by legal scholars who are very interested in the possibilities that phrenology held for making sense of this particular set of questions. And so what this means is that places like the courtroom and the prison become both become phrenological sites, phrenological sites for the production of knowledge and for the testing of expertise and the extension of expertise. We have examples to the 1830s, 1840s, and 1850s of phrenologists being called to the stand to testify in court cases as medical expert witnesses. And some of these were physicians who used phrenology, who we might term phrenological enthusiasts, mm -hmm. and some were self-declared phrenologists. So both of those groups are coming to bear. Not to mention that phrenologists were also called into the prisons to conduct autopsies, to examine brains and skulls of recently executed criminals to make sense of, of you know, the, the actions that they undertook. So phrenology becomes this way for, a, it offers a sort of solution to, as I said, what was then a very challenging medical legal problem. And it's also appealing because it shores up medical expertise at a time when medical expertise in the United States was also, I don't want to say on the decline, but, you know, during this, this Jacksonian era, there was a lot of doubting of experts and expertise. Uh, medical expert witnesses were really looked down upon. James Moore has a lot to say about this. Legal experts weren't always that well respected. So phrenology looked like a potential solution to several different kinds of problems. It could shore up expertise. It could solve this rift between medical and legal experts on various aspects of of, um, of the body of medicine. And it seemed to have something to say about this intransigent problem of criminal insanity. Could you give us an example of how phrenology does these things? This book is, for our listeners, this book is filled with examples from the press <laughs> at the time, from the courtrooms, from anyway. Um, do you have a favorite one? <laughs> Oh boy, I have so many favorite. It's it's hard because they're they're all my they're all my children. All of these examples, right? Um, you know, the the one that I'm going to talk about is is actually the first case, the case of Major Mitchell, which other scholars have written about before, um, and which I take as a sort of starting point for this moment. So, in 1834, there was a phrenological enthusiast by the name of John Neal living in Maine, and he was a lawyer. He was a novelist of the era, but he was also really into phrenology. And he wanted a test case, essentially, to see if he could prove that medical ex that that medical legalism could incorporate 
the lessons of phrenology. So 1834, we're in Portland, Maine, and there a nine-year-old boy by the name of Major Mitchell, and Major Mitchell was his full name. His first name was Major, which I, I always think is really funny. <laughs> okay. um, Major Mitchell, a uh, nine-year-old, he assaults another young boy and injures him. Um, he, he assaults him quite badly, but the other child survives. But uh, Mitchell is arrested and he's put on trial for the deliberate maiming of this other child. And Neil steps in as his attorney. And the thing is, Neil isn't that interested. And he, he admits this in later writings. He's like, I don't I wasn't really that worried about this kid. He basically says he thought Mitchell should go to jail, refers to him as a little monster elsewhere. You know, like he's he's not really interested in defending Mitchell as such. What he's interested in is defending phrenology. And that's what he sees this case as an opportunity to do. So what Neil does is he hinges his entire defense on phrenology. He argues that when Mitchell was a child, he fell down and was injured on the side of his head, right? And that this left essentially depression. And this is this is the problem with a, with a podcast is that I have these great images I would show you <laughs> if I could, um, but we're not in a visual medium right now. But essentially, the area that he he purported to have injured was one that had an effect, Neil argued, on his behavior, on the actions that he undertook that led to his criminal behavior. So Neil calls to the stand three different expert witnesses, all physicians. They're all doctors. And two of the three of them, sort of with prompting from Neil, use phrenology in their arguments. They use phrenological knowledge. They use, they actually cite some of the, the founders of the discipline, Gall and Spurzheim. And, and he, this is what he wants. This is exactly what he wants. Now, the other, the, the, the prosecuting attorney objects to this. The judge eventually throws out this testimony. And basically, there's a really fascinating back and forth where they're arguing about the nature of scientific expertise, whether you could count this as scientific expertise, because that's that's what the debate really was at this point in the 1830s. To what extent was the science? Was it too new? Could it be useful? How could it be useful within a court of law, right? Mm -hmm. So eventually the judge throws out that particular data. He's not allowed to use phrenological, you know, phrenological arguments anymore. And he loses the case. Mitchell, the nine-year-old, is sentenced to nine years of hard labor. So that's the 1830s. But the thing that's fascinating about this is that despite the fact that he lost the case, Neil thought this was a success. Because he argues, and he argues at several points, because he writes about this case later in his life several times, that this case was actually a triumph for phrenology. Because what happened was that they were able to put phrenological witnesses on the stand. And even if they didn't succeed, that didn't mean they weren't going to eventually. And what I talk about in the chapter is the way that, uh, and this chapter is based on an article that's in JHMAS. So if anyone wants to get a taste of the book, that's a good place to go as well. Um, and that journal for the yeah, the history. journal for the history of medicine and allied, <laughs> allied sciences. sciences. Sorry, <laughs> it's it's a it's a long title, so the, the acronym is simpler. Um, but the thing that's fascinating about this is what it actually does is it doesn't just signal what John Neal wants it to signal. This sort of opening of the doors. Um, to medical legal experts who can then take the stand. It certainly does happen. There are, after, in the decades following this case, you have physicians on the stand using phrenology, you have phrenologists on the stand, you have judges and lawyers both making use of phrenological knowledge and testimony, often very explicitly saying, Spurzheim argued this and phrenology says this, right? So those are the explicit cases. But what's 
just as interesting to me, possibly more interesting, is the way that this also opens the door for implicit cases. Because the other piece of the story of Major Mitchell is that one of the people behind the scenes during this case was uh, a man by the name of Isaac Ray, who was a young man living in Portland at the time, who would later go on to be one of the leading uh, American thinkers on psychiatry, who was one of the founders of the organization that became the American Psychiatry Association, the is that right? The American Psychiatry Association? APA. Yeah, APA. Yes, that's right. Okay. Um, so, so Isaac Ray at the time, he's living in Portland and he's a young man and Neil is his mentor. So Ray also is very interested in phrenology. He's reading about phrenology. He's translating works of phrenology. He's writing articles on phrenology. And when in the lead up to the case, he's the one who goes with Neil to the jail to examine Mitchell's head. And to see, you know, what his what his bumps are, essentially. So Ray is this physician, uh, later asylum superintendent. We can refer to him as an early psychiatrist, I think, who is very much in this world of phrenology in the early 1830s. And through the first part of the 1830s, he's also publishing in legal journals using phrenological texts. Right. And he's acknowledged by jurists. Jurists are basically looking at him and they're saying, A, this guy has really useful material for us. But B, he's really influenced by phrenology. Those two things coexisted. And one of them wasn't seen as as bringing down the other. Now, in 1838, Isaac Ray publishes a book, a treatise on the medical jurisprudence of insanity. That's a very important text for this debate about the nature of criminal insanity. Can a person be uh, mentally ill to such an extent that they do not understand the crime that they're committing? What's fascinating about this text, other scholars have argued that by this point, only four years after the Mitchell trial, um, Ray had moved on from phrenology. I don't believe that this is the case. While Ray is not that explicit in using phrenology, he does still cite major phrenologists and phrenological texts. And what's more important is he uses the language of phrenology throughout his book. He refers to an organ of destructiveness, but more crucially, he uses this language of propensity. And propensity is not a term, it's not language that was invented by phrenologists, but it was one that was uh, swiftly adopted by them, particularly Spurzheim and rapidly became associated with phrenology, such that if one was referring to the organ of destructiveness, which is the organ of murder of the title, Mm -hmm. um, one would know that what that meant was that a person had a propensity to destroy. The two ideas went hand in hand with one another. So Ray's text uses this language and fills his text with this language. And then crucially what happens after this is that Ray's book becomes a hit. It becomes the go-to book in both the United States and in England. It's actually cited in the Minotan trial, right? Uh, the, mm-hmm. the attorneys actually read long passages out of the book during that trial, the trial that, that basically established, established the criminal insanity defense um, in, in the UK. We more or less followed suit. So throughout the century, throughout the next few decades, sorry, what you see is on the one hand, yes, phrenology is brought into court in all these explicit ways, but it also, especially through continuous citation of this one key text of Ray, the language of phrenology is also brought into the courtroom, into the medical legal sphere, um, often to the point where at a certain point, um, people start to lose sight of its phrenological origins. So they keep using this language, but they've forgotten where it came from. And that I think is, is quite interesting. Um, and this is one of the early pieces of the puzzle that I was able to put together. I remember John Warner turning to me at one point after us 
having discussion about some of what I was finding. And he said, propensity. There's something about the language there that you should look into. And, you know, it led me down an interesting path. But as always, he was right. So um, how does how does phrenology move? It, it, it moves into these institutional spaces, the courtroom, the prison, and then through the work of I, phrenologists into mm-hmm. popular culture. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how phrenology relate, you know, comes to relate to 19th century popular culture? Sure. So it was a process. And I think it was a longer process than most people realize. Um, the efflorescence of practical phrenology doesn't really kick off until about mid-century. By that point, um, by the time we get to the 1840s, most of my elite phrenological enthusiasts had largely moved on from the topic. So even as elite phrenology is on the decline, that's when popular phrenology or practical phrenology is on the rise. So a lot of the responsibility for this emergence of practical phrenology in the 19th century is usually laid at the feet of two men, Orson and Lorenzo Fowler, and they're sort of associated circle because eventually, um, you know, Lorenzo's wife, Lydia Folger Fowler, gets involved. Um, Jesse Fowler, who's one of the, their daughters, you know, it becomes sort of a family affair. So them with the Wells family, Samuel Wells is one of their associates. All of these folks sort of sort of become like the nexus of American phrenology. Well, of course, it was never that simple. Um, pretty much every region had a few local phrenologists, a few traveling phrenologists. There's records of them all across the United States. If you go into any average archive, you can find all sorts of phrenological records from, from random phrenologists everywhere. But this was a very, at least in the case of the Fowlers, this was a, a very concerted effort to bring phrenology to the masses. They They discovered phrenology as young men when they were attending college, essentially, and decide to basically make it their their life career. Orson takes up, um, you know, he's sort of more settled. He hangs out in Philadelphia first, then in New York City, eventually taking control of the American Phrenological Journal, which had been founded primarily as a journal, mostly for a medical audience. And when the Fowlers take it over, it's mostly Orson's project, but Orson and Lorenzo collaborate, of course. Um, throughout the century, um, they turn it into this this organ of practical phrenology, and especially an organ of their reformist politics as well. So, what you what you see is by the time we get to mid century, their American Phrenological Journal has a readership of twenty thousand people. That's not small, right? Mm-hmm. Not to mention that they're also publishing yearly almanacs. They are offering readings for a fee. Lorenzo also in the early days when he was still quite young man took on basically a cross country trip going from town to town, talking about phrenology, reading heads, all of this sort of thing. Now, the thing that's kind of fascinating is our early phrenologists, our, our phrenological enthusiasts, right? We're really mm-hmm. against these practices. Um, folks like George Coombe, a lot of our American uh, phrenological enthusiasts really disparaged the notion of public lectures and of reading heads for a fee. They thought that it cheapened the science. They thought that you shouldn't read the heads of living people, although living respectable people. So Uh that still allowed them to examine criminals, of course, but you you shouldn't read the heads of normal people. Of course, that would be, that would be a bridge too far. So there was very much in the, in the early days, this, 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 uh, you know, in the the 1830s, for example, as the front, as the Fowler brothers are just starting out, what they're doing is is very much looked down upon by our elite enthusiasts who basically think that the place of phrenology 
should be in halls of science and in universities and in uh, you know courtrooms. It shouldn't be on the streets. It shouldn't be you know it's good. It's good certainly, especially within Boston's Lyceum culture, right? To to educate the public, but that doesn't mean they need to be doing phrenology. Right. Right. So what the Fowler brothers were really trying to do was democratize the process and not to mention, you know, they made a living that way. They made pretty good money. Uh, And over time, they were able to charge more and more for their services. They started they set up shop in New York and had their phrenological rooms, which over the century involved uh, obviously a lot of readings of heads, a lot of public lectures. By the end of the century, they basically had courses you could take for, you know, sort of phrenological institute. So this was absolutely a a practice of commodification. It was very much their intention to spread it, but that was not, but but again, it's intention to, intention with the, the goals of our earlier enthusiasts of the beginning of the century. But over time, phrenology really does become quite pervasive. How does it relate to 19th century popular culture? Well, it was popular culture by a certain point. Phrenological language and image became very widespread. You see phrenological jokes in and stories in detective novels and sentimental fiction, in poetry, in humor, of course, in satire, of course, in comedy, lots of jokes in newspapers, mm-hmm. phrenological coverage in newspapers, of course. And, uh, you know, even showing up in things like minstrel shows. Um, so phrenology really did pervade a lot of the cultural products of the 19th century, such that one could make a joke in the 1880s or 1890s uh, in the context of, say, a minstrel show. I do talk about minstrel mm-hmm. shows a little bit in the book about the organ of destructiveness. And everybody who is watching that performance would know exactly what that was and what it meant and what it signified. So the language and the imagery became so widespread that it could be used in this sort of shorthand, such that um, whether you're a judge in a courtroom, which certainly happened, or a reader of a popular work of fiction or somebody reading the newspaper, you could open it up and you could see a notice or information or something about the organ of destructiveness, which is the main focus of the book, and know what that meant and what that looked like and where in the head it was. That's how widespread the images, the language, and the theories of phrenology became. So what happens to phrenology? What what happens going into the 20th century? Um, mm-hmm. t- what becomes of it? Well, I mean, phrenology dies several deaths is the mm-hmm. thing, right? Uh, it's sort of like, uh, you know, at the end of Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, and there keep being endings and you think, oh, this is it. Um, it's, it's never quite <laughs> it. Uh, so I would, I would say we're still in that long ending, honestly, waiting for that post-credit scene to tell us that we're, we're not quite out of it yet. Um, so, you know, it, it depends on what you're talking about. Like, when does phrenology really die out? Where does it end? Well, does it end when the scientists and physicians start to turn away from it in the late 1830s, early 1840s, when the critiques of especially, especially French anatomists basically kill its scientific credibility? Well, that's one death. But in the 1840s, that was the same time that practical phrenology was becoming very popular in the United States. So is that what kills phrenology? Um, phrenology arguably dies another death at the turn of the 20th century, except does it really? There was still an active phrenological society in the United Kingdom, for example, into the 1930s and 1940s, possibly only disrupted because of war. Um, 
is phrenology even really dead now? I, I think that we could debate <laughs> that. But you know, the short the short version is it 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 is one of these science sciences that seems to keep dying. So you have the death of elite enthusiasm, you have the death of popular phrenology, which is a very slow, very dragged out death that arguably takes decades, and uh, a lot of smaller deaths along the way, um, including, of course, every time one of the founders died. Um, that led to, uh, on the one hand, when Spurzheim died, that was actually really the moment that set off phrenological enthusiasm in the United States. But when the Fowler brothers die, you know, some of their their children and, and relatives carry on their name, but it, they simply don't have the same star power. They don't have the same drawing power as the Fowler brothers had had themselves. So what disciplines take its place? Um, well, first and foremost, you have neurology, right? When uh, Broca and Wernicke and others at the middle of the century are starting to do, you know, engage in their practices of cerebral localization in Europe, um, when these things are talked about, early early neurology, early cerebral localization, one of the first things that people do is they point to it and they say, oh, that's that's the new phrenology. They're doing phrenology. It's it's different, but it's still phrenology. Um, and I should say that phrenologists love this. They absolutely want it to be thought of as being in the same company as these new as these new phrenologists, as they called them. So with regard to studies of the brain, and especially cerebral localization, um, what neurology has to do for most of the 19th century, the, the latter part of the 19th century, is fight the associations with phrenology because that's what it looks like to so many people. At the same time, with regard to crime in particular, we have the emergence at the end of the 19th century with criminology. Um, you have Lombroso and his notion of the born criminal. You have Bertillon and the Bertillon system of anthropometry, criminal identification. You also have the early sort of trials of things like mug shots, fingerprints, and so forth. Um, but what you get that I think is very different in that the sort of, and I'm, I'm using finger quotes here, the birth of criminology, which I would argue is, is, is not a late 19th century story at all. But uh, one of the things that's interesting about that is the pessimism of these late 19th century theories of criminals. This idea that you can't reform them, that your only goal is to um, identify recidivists, that some people can't be, you know, are just born that way, right? It's basically what Lombroso argues. Whereas our phrenologists, uh, phrenological criminology of the earlier part of the century was much more, I would say, optimistic with regard to the potential for the reform of criminals, for the reform of society in general. So the book concludes um, with, and we've we've alluded to this several times, and this is a this is a quote um, that the phrenological impulse lives on in American culture as a, a dark mirror reflecting and shaping ever evolving phrenological futures. So, how is phrenology still with us? Where can we observe its traces? Um, how there are phrenological futures? What? <laughs> <laughs> I would say a phrenological present, even, yeah. um, which is something I wrote about fairly recently. So, I mean, I think that the, the I, I just this morning, I was actually giving a guest lecture in somebody's class. And one of the students asked a really interesting question. And during our discussion, the, the point that I came to essentially with the students was, was once you start seeing it, you can't unsee it, right? Mm -hmm. um, phrenological language and imagery 
is pervasive in, in modern American culture. And if the images and the language are pervasive, then I would argue so too are the assumptions, especially this notion of the naturalization down to the bones, right? Of, mm -hmm. of certain kinds of difference, of certain kinds of character or intelligence, right? So in the book, mm -hmm. I talk a lot about language and image, especially the language of propensity on the one hand, and on the other hand, the imagery that was associated with good and bad heads. And again, this is not a visual medium, but the very short version of it is bad heads, generally speaking, were wide heads. They were wide, especially over the ears, usually narrow in the crown of the head. So picture a wide face, and that is a bad head for the phrenologist, whereas a good head was a narrow one, especially narrow over the ears with a high forehead, all that sort of thing. Now, if you start to look around in the world, what you'll see, first of all, is you will hear the language of propensity everywhere, especially in discussions of crime. Think of true crime dramas, um, television shows, newspaper coverage of criminals. That language is everywhere. And what it does, I think, is naturalizes, again, this assumption that certain aspects of character are immutable and, and, and one is born into them, right? So this notion mm -hmm. of propensity is one that naturalizes criminality down to a person's essential being. And that, I think, is a very phrenological point of view. On the other hand, the imagery is also everywhere. The students in this class I was in this morning, basically after we, we, we looked at a lot of images and they started to comment on how similar these images of good and bad heads are to cartoon characters. And they're right. Watch Disney cartoons, put on an average cartoon on television, and you'll see good and bad heads based on the lessons of phrenology and physiognomy, I should mention, everywhere. We're still using this language. But cartoons don't seem to be very serious, right? We don't seem mm -hmm. to think cartoons are that important, nor do we think it really matters that, you know, the image of the phrenological bust is used so much. So, I mean, who cares about that? Well, I mean, one reason why we should care is because these images of good and bad heads, narrow heads being good, wide heads being bad, first of all, also code for a lot of race, race and class aspects of, of identity, and as well as gender and disability, which I do discuss a bit mm -hmm. in the book. Um, but these assumptions are also being replicated in the present. So just this past fall, and, and I, could, I could pull out any number of examples, because every few months, this happens again. And then uh, everybody sends me the article. And then yes. I have to, I, I, I will never be free of it. But you know, just just this past fall, there was an article published in Nature Communications, which is associated with the journal Nature, right? Mm -hmm. um, an article that used machine learning to analyze uh, basically trustworthy faces, right? Mm -hmm. So they did a machine, they built an algorithm to basically construct trustworthy and untrustworthy faces. And what they found were wide heads were bad and narrow heads were good. The images that are associated wow. with this publication, um, many of which I should say, this guy got so much, the guy who tweeted about it got so much pushback, he actually left Twitter. So, I mean, I'm not the only person who's noticing these things, of course, but um, so much of the visual imagery that's associated today with um, AI studies, facial recognition, is is overwritten with these phrenological assumptions about what good and bad people look like. And if we consider that this also impinges on aspects of, of, of things like race and ethnicity, we can understand why it's so problematic, especially because, you know, as as I, I don't need to tell you, we often think mm -hmm. of algorithms and AI as being somehow 
removed from human influence and and neutral, value neutral. But as we historians of science know, science is never neutral. Science is never pure. It's always encompassing our assumptions and often not not very good assumptions. Mm -hmm. What's fascinating for me, of course, is how these phrenological images have still stuck around. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say that phrenology created these ideas about good and bad heads whole cloth. But I do think that our continued usage of this visual imagery, um, this is this is what I find to be both fascinating and concerning, that the language and the images of phrenology are still with us. When, as I talk about in the book, that this language and imagery has real stakes for real people mm -hmm. about who we think are bad people by their nature, the extent to which we believe people can be reformed or changed who we trust on an individual level or on a societal level, and what kinds of punishment we assess those who commit crimes. So the continued usage of the language and image of chronology is something that I find to be not at all surprising, but certainly a bit troubling. Uh, if nothing else, I would like to move on from phrenology at some point. <laughs> but really, I would really appreciate it if um, you know the world stopped making my research relevant. That would be fantastic honestly. <laughs> well, um, one way to move on is, is to start an, start another project, start working on something new. Yes. So um, what are you working on now? I, I'm working on a few things right now, actually. Um, I My big project, my next big book project is going to be, it's, it's tentatively entitled A Calculus of Compassion. And it's going to be a book about affect and identity in the doctor-patient relationship in the late 19th century South and West. And I'm focusing it in particular on a close reading of the archive of Southern physician, Andrew Bowles Holder, who lived and worked uh, in the United States South, as well as on a Western reservation in Montana with indigenous peoples. And I'm bringing a history of emotions approach to thinking about how he and other people like him, because I'll be you know, also writing about the, the work of other um, white physicians like him, white male physicians like him, how their um, consideration of their patients was shaped by identity politics, gender, race, sexuality, um, class, regional identity, as well as how their emotional responses were shaped by identity and how this shaped medical practice. So that's my big project that I'm working on. In addition, I'm also exploring a new project on precocity in the 19th century. So hmm. I came to this sort of by accident. I found a few articles in a 19th century journal while I was looking for material about my big book project about uh, precocious pregnancy, so children having children. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's honestly very depressing, but kind of hard to look <laughs> away from. And uh, right now, it's, it's just an article, but I'm thinking a lot about the various meanings of precocity in the 19th century. So what makes children children? What do we do with children when they act in, in ways that are, that are older than their years, whether that's in an intellectual or creative fashion or acting out sexually? Um, so that, that's another possible project. And then finally, I'm also co-writing a pop press book with uh, a physician and a policy analyst that's going to be about the modern healthcare system. So that's wow. a... It's a complete departure. It's been a really interesting process to try co-writing. And with the three of us are from such different backgrounds. You can, you can imagine our voices are, um, 
quite different <laughs> in the dress, but, but, you know, it's, it's actually, it's, I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. If nothing else, it's a really nice break from, you know, from the more academic writing that I've been doing. So it's been fun to work on and to think about, you know, sort of as, as I think about the next stage of my career, how do we, how do we talk as, as historians to the public? And I think if there's one thing COVID has taught me and this project has actually grown at least in part out of the COVID year, um, it's that we historians of medicine really do have a duty and a responsibility to speak to a broader public and to make the case for why the history of medicine needs to be part of the stories we tell ourselves about the United States as a nation. Well, Courtney, um, you've convinced me and those all three of those projects sound wonderful. And we'll see, you know, which of them um, gets back on the new books network first. Um, oh gosh, who knows? And... Who knows at this point? I'm very distractible. So it could be anything. Thank you for taking time to come and share your work with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure.